Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome to the 100th and 7th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Mark was unable to record the podcast with me this week, so I invited the one and only Aaron Kramer to join me this week. He's a fellow wealth advisor here at our firm, Jessup Wealth Management. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks. I'm happy to be here in Mark's absence. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. We always have a good time with we these. We do. It's fun. I'm, I'm looking ready. forward to it. So uh, before we begin, as always, uh, I'm going to... Um, recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indices uh, that we track, Aaron, for the listeners. I know Mark usually does this. These numbers are for the market close, Aaron, for July 15th, and this data is from stockcharts.com. Great. Okay. S&P 500 index uh, for the month is up 1.18%. For the year, Aaron, 15.72. Dow Jones Industrial Average Index, up 1.07% for the month. For the year, Aaron, 13.78. Very good. NASDAQ Composite for the month, up five basis points. Wow. Five basis points. <laughs> Huge. And uh, for the year, 12.47. The uh, small cap index represented by the IWM uh, represents the Russell 2000 small cap, down 5.45% for the month and now up 10.89% for the year. That's pretty interesting. That is interesting. Some some uh, air coming out of the small cap yeah. trade. Vanguard International ETF, X United States for the month, down 1.24, and for the year up 8.94. Three-month T-bill is sitting at four basis points. Two-year is sitting at 0.23%, and the 10-year is sitting at 1.3%. Wow. So that 10-year continues to continues come to down. Fall continues to fall. Let's cover uh, big news headlines and current events for the week that kind of caught our eye. Uh, Fed Chair Powell went to Capitol Hill yesterday for his semi-annual monetary policy report. It's uh, also known old school Wall Street as the Humphrey Watkins uh, report, and his comments will be especially scrutinized after another round of hefty jump in the consumer price index, Aaron. However, while he will likely indicate that price pressures have um, been above Fed expectations, he's uh, thinking that he's going to continue to reiterate that transitory short-term function. Right. And he says it's largely a function of base effects and the supply and demand impacts from reopening and supply chain constraints. I would agree with that. I tend to agree. I agree with that. Um, he also uh, repeated the FOMC is not yet ready to begin withdrawing accommodation as labor market has yet to fully recover. Next, we have uh, an interesting uh, statistic. The 5.3% Social Security COLA estimate for 2022 was just calculated by the Senior Citizens League, Aaron. Wow. It's a nonpartisan senior group and is based on the CPI index data from the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics through May. So they're it's kind a pretty of pretty big, pretty big increase. Yes, I don't think I, we've seen anything that big since 2008. Yes, you're exactly right. Actually, uh, stealing your thunder. <laughs> I love it. No, you know that. That's awesome, dude. I was gonna say the last time they got a, a move like this was at the beginning of 09 from 08, which is great. It's been a while since people yeah, saw such a raise. Yeah. It's very interesting. 
Next, we have an update on child tax credit payments. Those started to be sent out from the IRS, Aaron, yesterday on July 15th. For most people, the combined total of the six monthly payments will equal 50% of the child tax credit they're expected to qualify for their 2021 return. Interesting. So my first comment is, this is an advance. It is, yeah. It's essentially kind of what the stimulus payments were, a credit, but they're just giving it to you early. Early, early. They'll claim the other half when they file their taxes for 2021 next year. For 2021 only, the child tax credit is increased from $2,000 for a child age 16 or younger to $3,600, Aaron, per child. And um, let me get that right. Hold on. For each child, it's $2,000. And $3,600 for the kid if they are under five. I'm sorry. Correct. All right. I apologize by that. So... um, this translates to a monthly payment of up to $300 per child for age six, um, for under age six, I'm sorry, and up to $2,500 for each child ages six through 17. The overall credit uh, is subject to certain phase-out rules, so families with higher incomes won't receive that much. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good thing for, for families that need the cash flow throughout the year. It'll definitely help continued stimulus. and With the dropping off of that. Yeah federal uh, unemployment subsidy. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, let's transition, Aaron, to tweets, articles, and research that caught our eye for the week. How about you start off? Yeah, I got a good one for you. Um, this is going to be the Argus Market Update, and this is on 7-15 of this month. Um, and it's investing environment favorable heading into earnings season. So it goes on to say, the second quarter 2021 earnings season is expected to re- reflect some of the strongest ever year-over-year growth in S&P 500 earnings. Um, that's partly due to an easy comparable against second quarter of 2020 uh, when the pandemic had shut down the U.S. economy, but also reflective of a highly favorable economic environment in the U.S. Um, continues to say, key drivers of our bullish outlook include the growing economy, continued levels of interest rates, low levels of interest rates, excuse me, and earnings growth. We recognize risks in the outlook, which include worrisome resurgence in COVID infections, signs of rising inflation, and high stock market valuations. On balance, we look for positives to prevail, leading to further strengthening in stocks into the year end. I think it's a pretty good summary by Argus. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good summary. Kind of, kind of hits, gets all the high notes. I think. So you know what I what I think about when when you were reading this is in regards to the earnings season that just kicked mm-hmm. off this week with the financials. So last week, Mark and I hinted that at the very end of this month is where a bulk of S and P five hundred companies report, and when they talk about these comparisons, listeners. Stocks tend to compare the second quarter of how they performed this year to the second quarter of last year, how they performed. And since the second quarter of last year was due to a really tough COVID environment, their comps or comparisons should look good. Yeah, they should look really good. Relatively speaking. Right. Right, Aaron? And if you think about it, some of these companies will definitely have a tailwind the next couple of quarters with these year-over-year comparisons. Right, right. It definitely helps. Obviously, their results look good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you think you see any sort of buy the rumor, sell the news coming out of that? I think you very well could, Aaron. Absolutely. So, um, listeners, what Aaron's alluding to is it wouldn't surprise, let's say, um, if these stocks ran higher or up into earnings, Mm -hmm. and then after they report, 
they sell off or you sell the news. Right. And I definitely think you could see that, especially with the run-up you're seeing in some of these technology names right now. Mm -hmm. I think the market is telling you earnings are going to be strong. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Awesome. All right, let's move on here. I got another one for you. Okay. Um, it's an update on housing. And this is a tweet from David Schwawell, if I'm saying his name correctly. He's the CIO of Family uh, Management Corp. And this is on Monday, he said this. Um, and it has a, uh, he says, if you're looking for a housing bus, we're probably not there. Uh, Five-year cumulative growth in mortgage debt is up just 6% versus 65% in 2006. Uh, may not feel like it, but lending standards and types of loans are far more conservative today than they were in um, 05 and 07. You're seeing people with down payments now, Aaron. They wasn't like that before. Average credit scores yeah, are higher. I was just going to mention that. Credit score, I don't know the exact statistic, but are there, most of them are 750 and above. I think two-thirds are above 750 yeah. was the last stat yeah. I saw. So let me say that again. Five-year cumulative growth in mortgage debt is just up 6%. And whereas in 2006, it was up 65%. So you know what this data point does is it proves my, it proves what I've been saying that the consumer is not tapping into their home equity to fund their lifestyle. Yes. And I feel, Aaron, that a lot of people did that in the 2000s. And that led, yeah. that was another contributing factor to the 07, 08 financial crisis. Just over, over leveraged. Overextended, constantly tapping into the equity in their home. And, you know, you're just not seeing that right now. And this data backs that up. Right, right. And with interest rates as low as they are, and the mortgage levels aren't rising that much, I still think it points to some, some very good consumer strength, in my opinion. Yeah, and, you know, this is not to say that, okay, well, all is clear for housing, but I think if you wanted to compare the run-up in real estate of 05, 06, 07 to now. It's very different. I, I think it's different. Yeah. The credit scores of, of people getting those mortgages is, is a 180. And I think somebody, statistically speaking, that has a 750 or above credit score is not going to walk away from their house, statistically, in my opinion, if they're underwater. Right. On the, right. On the value to debt ratio. Right. I think this is it's an interesting stat. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a good chart too with the five year cumulative growth. It it kind of really puts it in perspective. Love that. Um, and it's uh, another uh, image is attached to this, and it says interest rates uh, of all mortgage debt outstanding is down to three point five two percent. That is uh, it's quite low in my opinion. Yeah, you go back to 07, um in the average was about five and a half percent. Yeah, over a life of a loan, that's a it's a pretty big jump. Look at that. Back in 2000, I started in the industry in 99. In 2000, the average was 7.5%. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, I think that's a good stat because, you know, we're, we're talking about housing. You know, um, a lot of people have a good chunk of their net worth and the equity in their home. It's just neat to see people being responsible. Yeah, it's it's uh, statistically it's rare. on average. It's rare. <laughs> it's rare for the American consumer. All right, I got a couple, Aaron. All right. So the first I got is why it's so hard to day trade. That's my topic. Are you ready? I'm ready. So bespoke, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm still getting over these sinus troubles. <clears throat> I think everyone is around here. Oh my gosh. So sorry, listeners. Uh, this is from Bespoke Investment Group, July 14th. Okay. This is an update on after hours versus intraday price action in the U.S. stock market lately. The chart 
that we're looking at and that Bespoke has published numerous times over the years shows that more than 100% of the S&P 500's gain since 1993, and they're using the SPY ETF as the proxy, S&P 500 index, since 93 has come from price movements errands that occur outside regular trading hours. Wow. I'll say it again. More than 100% of the S&P 500's gain since 93 has come from price movements that occur outside normal trading hours of 9.30 to 4. So this chart is on our show notes. Listeners, you can access our show notes by going to all of our social media sites. If you go to jessupwealthmanagement.com, you're going to see a link for all of our social media, the likes of LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, etc. All that's going to be there, and you can find these charts in these show notes. What you're going to see on this chart from Bespoke is the green line in the chart shows the hypothetical performance since inception of buying SPY at the close of trading each and every day and selling it the next morning's open. That captures its return, quote-unquote, after hours and pre-market. Right. Now, given Aaron a majority of the market-moving headlines occur after the close or before the open each day, it makes sense that a large portion of equity markets overall move would come during that time frame. Right. So think of things like economic releases. So like jobs numbers, retail sales, major earnings from blue chip companies come after or before the market open. So when these reports are released, they cause the equity index futures to move either higher or lower. Right, they're reacting to it. They're reacting to it, exactly. When you look at your screen in the morning and you see S&P futures up 1% versus the prior day's close, it means the SPY is set to open higher by 1% when the exchange opens at 930. So as shown in this chart that you're going to see in our show notes, when the SPY began trading, buying the close and selling the open results in a cumulative gain of 920% since 1993. That's the real that's, that's big. The real shock, though, however, is the performance of intraday strategy. So this captures the SPY's cumulative change during regular trading hours. So in essence, it buys right at the open and sells right at the close. Can you believe since 1993, it's negative? Wow. Negative by two and a half percent. That's crazy. So I'll let you go first. When you hear me say this and you see this chart, what is the moral of the story for you? It's don't day trade, but it's also it's a long term strategy and trying to make intraday price changes and fast movements just historically does not work, in my opinion. Absolutely. So it, it's the it's the long trade of sticking to your long term goals of the objectives, all of that and not not trying to get minuscule price changes throughout the day. I would agree with thoughts? that. I'd agree with those two points. And the only other thing I'll add <clears throat> is the ability to time the market, given that it tends right. to move when the market's closed, quote unquote, when it opens up the next day, this is not a market you can time. Right. I mean, there's people that do it and it's rare, right? And you never, you always hear about the ones that do and you don't right. hear about the other, you know, 10 that, that failed, that failed, right? right? Yeah. Just a good stat it to put behind stat. about how day trading is so hard. It is. It it's really a, is. It's an interesting stat. That's a great stat. That's a great chart, too. So um, I have another good one. The topic of this uh, research is the real return 
of the 10-year Treasury bond. You ready for this? Mm. The source on this, Aaron, is Compound Advisors on July 11th. After adjusting for inflation, investors in the 10-year Treasury yield are now being paid negative 3.4%. That's the lowest real return. I should say it again, the lowest real rate of return since 1980. Now, you ready for this? I'm ready. Real yields on U.S. junk bonds have turned negative for the first time ever. The wow. yield right now, when you, when you include inflation and the year-over-year change in the consumer price index, average high-yield bonds are yielding negative 0.7%. That's incredible. So here's why what? I wanted to highlight yeah. this. I think there's still a lot of people out there that think, eh, I got that money in the bank. It's safe. It's not going anywhere. It's protected. I got this bulk of my wealth sitting in this 10-year treasury. It's government bond. It's safe. They're not seeing the silent killer. That inflation. Slow inflation decay. It's you're and losing purchasing power. Right. You just don't see it. And over a long period of time, it's that can add up. And so how do you get that hedge? Whether you like it or not, you got to get equity exposure. Yep, exactly. Right? And I think that is even more magnified in this low interest rate environment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? And so I want people to start thinking in the realm of real returns after you take inflation into play rather than looking at the coupon on that bond. Absolutely. Makes sense? It does. It's a great point. All right. Next one I have is a CapEx boom. I think this is a topic, Aaron, that a lot of people are not talking about right now. Okay. Um, so CapEx is uh, fancy for capital expenditures, and it's when a corporation is investing in their business. For typically long-term things. Long-term things. So real-life example, we are investing in our business right now yes. in CapEx. Yep. We're doing a major renovation and build-out here at our office. So we're spending money on this build-out, new furniture, new offices for staff. That's a CapEx spend. Yes. Right? So there was a, um, a research piece from Top Down Charts this week. And the title of the article was a post-pandemic investment boom question mark. So what they said is they showed a chart. This will be in our show notes. Again, you can access our show notes by going to jessupwealthmanagement.com. You'll see the link to all of our social media sites like LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, um, and you can access all these uh, charts. This is a chart of the S&P 500, and it shows um, its forward 12-month earnings year over year. And it overlays capital expenditure growth. And you would believe it, it moves in lockstep, right? It, it's almost like the exact same chart. Overlay. It really is. And so this is the quote from the article I wanted to share. Quote, in general, cash flow from operations is often used to pay wages, reward shareholders via dividends and buybacks, and invest in long-term projects, i.e. capital expenditures. So where's the money going to go? While increased buybacks and dividends, <clears throat> along with higher wages, is likely, Aaron, we expect a sharp uptick in capital expenditure spending. <clears throat> I'm highlighting this for this reason. As we go into the second half of this year, I think you're going to see a lot of corporations who have been very fiscally conservative since COVID hit. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to get back to their spending ways. I do. I do, too. I, I think, think they're going to dust off those, those uh, expansion plans. Because where else are you going to do with the money right now? Right. 
Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think they have more clarity on sort of the future of the economy and the pandemic, and they're going to have more confidence to, to invest in, in themselves, essentially. Yeah, whether that's more human capital, whether it's technology advancements, mm-hmm. I just think you're going to see a lot more spending by corporations. And that will help stock earnings. Absolutely. You just, what, what you got to do, listeners, is you got to find the names that are going to garner that capital spending. Right. That's where the trick comes in, right? Yep. Okay, I have one more before we go to the financial planning topic of the week. I want your feedback on this, buddy, okay? (laughs) So the title of this is Interesting Tweet, okay? So this is from a trader I follow called uh, BP Rising on on Twitter. He posted a picture, and it shows a telephone pole with a sign nailed to it that says, learning to trade, want to learn to trade options, and it has a, a number. And his quote is, things you don't see at stock market bottoms. I'll let you comment first. It's a little worrisome to me is the first comment. Um, you wanna, first of all, just generally explain what an option is. So you an don't option, have to go in depth. It's typically going to be you're going to have margin or you're borrowing against your from your broker to trade puts and calls and, and shorts, essentially. And that's levered trades. Yes. Leverage yep. trades. Yep. Um, so the risk is higher. It's certainly more complicated than a long position. Um, and it's not something that's easy to do. No. At all. So um, marketing that towards the, the average American, I'm assuming this is in the U.S., is um, kind of aggressive, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's just concerning with some of the newer platforms that are coming out there. I won't name names, but, you know, they tend to push this stuff. And they push this stuff because it behind the money. scenes, they make more money. Right. You know, and the thing that's with options, I think, is also besides the leverage that's dangerous is the time elements. Mm-hmm. It's not like you could just buy a stock and own it for five years. These options have a definitive time at which they expire. Right. So not only do you have to get the name right, you've got to get the right. time period right. 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 You start adding all of those factors into play. It's a lot of risk. It's a lot harder. And when it gets a lot harder and you're using leverage, the aptitude for failure just goes higher. Absolutely. So I just wanted to highlight that. It's just concerning it's, to see it's, it's, learn to it's trade options funny, on the side of a, of, a, of a telephone pole. But Okay, Aaron, let's transition to the financial planning topic of the week. In Mark's absence, you are going to be our MC. Yes. And um, I will let you take over, my friend. Awesome. Um, so this is going to be an article from uh, Kiplinger, and it's the most overlooked tax breaks for retirees. So it's got 10 topics here, and I kind of want your, want your opinion on these. All right? I'm in. I'm in. All right. The first one, uh, one of 10, is bigger standard deduction. Um, so when you turn 65, the IRS offers you a gift in the form of a larger standard deduction. Um, for example, a single 64-year-old taxpayer can claim a standard du- deduction of $12,550, um, and a 65-year-old taxpayer will get a 14250 standard deduction. So, so what you're saying is there's benefits to getting older. Exactly. All right. So the IRS kind of gives you a break on some taxes there. All right. So... That's, that's a good one to know. Got to look at the silver lining. Yes. <laughs> no, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's my, initial, my initial gut. It's hard to disagree with that one. Now, with the standard deduction, in plain English, that means that if someone wants to itemize Aaron, their things that they itemize would have to be greater to exactly. make it worth than just taking the standard deduction. Exactly. So from what I've seen, majority of people are taking the standard deduction right now. Just because, because it's, it's so, so high. high. It's so high. Um. 
Okay. All right. Number two is the spousal IRA contribution. Um, so this is kind of an interesting one. So um, retiring doesn't necessarily mean an end to the chance to shovel money into an IRA. Okay. Um, so typically you have to have earned income to contribute to an IRA. Um, but if you're married and your spouse is still working, say you're retired, um, you can typically have a spousal contribution where you can still contribute 7000 to an IRA if you're over 50. Um, so that, that's a good that's a good point that I, I think a lot of people might not might not think about. I think it's great. So what you're saying is as long as the household, one of them has earned income, they can make that contribution. Absolutely. <coughs> and it should Excuse be uh, should be deductible typically for, for most people, depending on their their, uh, their income threshold. Income. Yeah. So that's a that's a good thing to consider. I think a lot of people forget that. Yeah. So if one spouse is still working and they're still trying to save for for their own retirement or something like that, it it's uh it's a good good way to kind of shelter some tax money. As Love well. that. All right. Number three is the ability to deduct Medicare premiums. Um, so say you become self-employed, um, like as in a consultant that gives in this example. Um, after you leave your job, you can deduct uh, the premiums you pay for Medicare Part B and Part B, uh, plus the cost of supplemental Medicare or Medigap. Um, and the deduction is available whether or not you itemize and is not subject to the 7.5% of um, adjusted gross income that applies to other medical expenses. I was not aware of this. So yeah. again, Part B and Part D plus the cost of supplemental they don't have to go against the seven and a half percent AGI test. Yes, and you can deduct it if you. Um, um, yeah, that's good. You, yeah, I did not know that. Good, I did not know that one either. So that's uh, that's news to me. That's great. All right, number four is the tax credit for low income seniors, and I thought this one was kind of interesting. Okay. Um, so it's easy to miss the special tax credit for low income elderly or disabled people. Um, this tax credit isn't mentioned on Form Ten Forty. Um, kind of not surprised. Uh, I'm not the surprised there. <laughs> not going to highlight free cash. Yeah. So um, to be eligible for the credit, you must be a qualified individual and pass two income tests. Um, generally, you're qualified individual if at the end of the tax year, you are age 65 or older, or you are under age 65 um, and on permanent disability or total disability uh, and receive taxable disability income. Okay. Okay, so the first income test is going to be based on your adjusted gross income. Um, and if you file your tax return using the single head of household or qualifying widow or widower uh, filing status, your AGI must be less than 17500 Okay. Um, so that sounds pretty low, but with the high standard deduction. And it's not that bad. It's not that bad. So a lot of people might be missing on this. Um, Interesting. So, Because they think seventeen five on my Social Security is that. But Social Security is not all taxable, so that's kind of interesting. Um, so if you're married and file a joint return, but only one spouse qualifies for the credit, your AGI can't reach 20000 So um, it's a little more advantageous, it seems like, for, for single filers, in my mm. opinion. Um, so the second income test is based on the combined total of your non-taxable Social Security, pensions, annuity, and disability income. Um, so for single head of household taxpayers, the combined income must be less than 5,000. The same income limit applies to joint filers. If only one spouse qualifies for the credit. Um, so if both spouses on a joint return qualify for the credit, the income limit is 7,500. So, um, what's, what's kind of your thoughts there? You know, my whole two cents is this at the end of the day, you know, if the, both those spouses on the joint return qualify for the credit, 
that's a that's a pretty that's pretty low at seventy five hundred yeah. yeah. on that. But so. overall, you know, I, I'm surprised this is not promoted more. Yeah, it seems like it could help help a lot of people out, in my opinion. So because just, I think that, it should with be that included standard deduction being so high, there's going to be more people than you think that get into this. Right, right. So I think it should be included on the 1040. Just my my opinion. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not. Interesting. Okay. All right. Number five is timing tax payments. Um, so obviously we have a voluntary tax system. Um, and uh, it works best when the least opportunity to not volunteer. Um, it's kind of interesting. So um, it says, although we think of uh, April 15th as tax day, taxes are actually due as income is earned. Um, and employers have become the country's primary tax collectors by withholding taxes from our paychecks. Um, but when you retire, you break out of that system. And now it's up to you to make sure the IRS gets its, uh, gets its due when it's due. Um, if you wait to send a check until the following year when your tax return is due, you're um, likely going to get a nasty surprise and some penalties and interest. Correct. Because the, the government or the IRS wants your taxes paid kind of as you earn or take out Correct. that money. Correct. Um, so withholding is, uh, is one way you can get this done. So withholding isn't only for paychecks. If you receive regular payments from a 401k plan or an IRA, um, the payers will withhold tax. Um, and we do that a lot for clients yeah, here, yeah, who are retired, do. taking income. We prepay Fed and state tax. Yep. And uh, we'll see a lot of people do that if, say, if they're getting Social Security and some of it's taxable or some of if they get a pension, they might overwithhold on an IRA to kind of make up for some so of So they don't owe. Exactly. Yeah, we see that a lot. Um, so that, that's pretty interesting. Um, so with pensions uh, and IRAs and 401k withdrawals, um, you'll be able to withheld unless you file a uh, W-4P form. Um to put a kibosh on it. So kind of interesting. Interesting. Um, So it goes on to say things are a little different with Social Security benefits. There will be no withholding unless you specifically ask for a a filing form, the W-4V form, um, and you can opt for withholding on Social Security at 7, 10, 12, or 22% rate. Okay, you can do that. Yep, so it's a little bit more more customizable, but you do have to request that form. Um, So... Withholding isn't necessarily a bad thing, it says, and it stretches your tax bill over the entire year. Um, and it also might make life easier if you would otherwise have to make quarterly estimated tax payments. Correct. Um, so quarterly estimated tax payments, uh, they're an alternative to withholding. Um, and essentially, you make estimated tax payments based off kind of what you're estimating your income is um, going to be for the year, and you make those payments quarterly. So um, anything you want to add to that? I think it's... I think it's good to good nope. to think of, and you have some some good options for kind of getting the best um, withholding and kind of estimating your taxes over the year. No, my only two cents is I do see a lot of clients that over withhold from their IRA withdrawals to account yeah. for everything else like pensions and taxable SSI, and I think it's a smart idea. Yeah, very good. All right, number six is avoid the pension payout trap. So I thought this was a good one. Um, so I'll read through this here. Um, there's a menacing expectation to the general rule that it's up to you whether the taxes will be withheld from payments from pensions, annuities, IRAs, and other retirement plans. Um, if you get a lump sum payment or other rollover distributions from a company plan, you could fall into the pension payout trap. Okay. Um, so as mentioned earlier, if you take distributions, the company is required by law to withhold a flat 20% for the IRS, even if you simply plan to roll over the money into an IRA. Um, 
And it says, even if you complete the rollover within the 60 days required by law, the IRS will still hold on to the 20% until you file a tax return uh, for the year and demand a refund. Worse yet, uh, how can you roll over 100% of a lump sum if the IRS is holding 20% of it? Um, and failure to come up with the extra money for the IRA would mean that you would be considered a taxable distribution, triggering an immediate tax bill, uh, maybe penalties, and uh, certainly forever reducing the amount of your IRA tax shelter. Um, so fortunately, there's an easy way around that, that outcome. Uh, simply ask your employer to send the money directly to a rollover IRA. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the thing you have to keep out for is recognizing between taking it personally or a 60-day rollover or having it sent directly to the custodian of your IRA. So I think that's important for people to recognize is that if you do want to take a lump sum out of a pension instead of annuitizing it or taking it over your life, um, it's important to have it sent directly to the IRA custodian. Exactly, Aaron. So the big thing there, listeners, is when you're doing that distribution paperwork, you want to make sure it's made payable to your other retirement account, not yourself. Personally, exactly. And when that happens, it avoids all the worries that you that Aaron just mentioned. Right, and it's called a direct rollover, so that's, that's super important. For Absolutely. So don't retirees. make the checkout to yourself. Don't take a distribution. Yes. That's the, that's the message. All right. Number seven, the RMD workarounds. Um, so required minimum distributions weren't required in 2020, but they're back for 2021. Um, so if you need to take a, yeah, for a lot of people, that's, it's kind of a big chunk of money that they don't want to take out of their, their IRAs, um, or 401ks, whatever it may be. So if you don't need the required distribution to live on during the year, um, it says to wait until December to take the money. Um, I like this one. Yeah. And ask your IRA sponsor to hold back a big chunk of it for the IRS another, uh, um, enough to cover the estimated tax on both the RMD and your other taxable income as well. Cause they won't, they won't, they won't ding you on that timing. Right. Cause that just has to be done by the end of the year. So that's a great one. That's a really good one. That's my favorite so far. Me too. I think that's the most, uh, strategic. I think it is. Um, number eight, give money to charity. Um, once you read 70 and a half, there's a tax friendly way to make charitable donations, even if you don't estimate itemize. Okay. Um, it's called the Qualified Charitable Distribution, or QCD. Um, with a QCD, you can transfer up to 100000 each year from your traditional IRAs directly to charity. Um, if you're married, your spouse can transfer an additional 100000 to charity from his or her IRAs, and the transfer is excluded from taxable income and counts towards your required minimum distribution. I love that. That's a big win-win. So That's for a lo- people that, that don't need that I. Um, required minimum distribution money, this is a great option to satisfy that and contribute to a a charity that you like as well. So let's make it actionable. You know, let's say we have clients that are above the age of 70 and a half, and let's say you systematically give to a charity, let's say a religious organization. Right. Well, instead of you writing that check every week and giving it, what you should do is once a quarter per se, have a QCD come out of your IRA and go right to that charity. Right. And you're avoiding all the taxes. You're helping meet your RMD for the year, your required minimum distribution. And it doesn't impact the charity any differently. Doesn't. Actionable, easy, tax efficient. Win-win for you and the charity. All right. That's now now my favorite. (laughs) That's now my favorite. Great. Um, Number nine is give money to your family. So a uh, few Americans have to worry about the federal estate tax um, after it's up to $11.7 million, uh, for an individual. Um, 
but if there is an estate tax that might be in your future, be sure to take advantage of the annual gift tax exclusion. Um, this rule lets you give up to 15000 annually without it counting towards that um, estate tax um, minimum, let's say. And there might be some major changes to this. It's a possible. Yeah, I think that, that $11.7 million is pretty high, and it would not surprise me if, uh, if that fell back towards um, levels. What was it in the last... Uh, before it was five five million yeah around okay. five i could see it going back there yeah i agree so that's a good strategy to to sort of gift some money as well if you want to help children or grandchildren as well yep all right the last one here is tax-free profit from a vacation home okay i'm i'm i'm, I'm interested You're intrigued i'm intrigued <laughs> all right i'll take the bait <laughs> the rules are clear it says to qualify for tax-free profit from the sale of a home you must be your principal residence and you must have owned it and lived in it for at least two years of the five years leading up to the sale. Um, but there is a way to capture tax-free profit from the sale of a former vacation home. Former. So this is interesting. Let's okay. say you sell the family homestead and cash in on it uh, on the break, and that makes up 250000 in profit tax-free, uh, 500000 if you're married and file jointly. You then move into a vacation home you've owned for 25 years, as long as you make that house your principal residence for at least two years, part of the profit on the sale will be tax-free. Giddy up. So basically, the, the 250 or 500000 exclusion doesn't apply to any profit um, that is allocable to the time after 2008. That home is not used as your principal residence, for example. Assume you bought the vacation home in 2001, convert it to your principal residence in 2015, and sell it in 2021. The post-2008 vacation home is used is seven of the 20 years you own the property. So 35%, which is seven divided by 20, uh, of the profit would be taxable at capital gains rate. Uh, the other 65 would qualify for the 250 or 500,000 exclusion. I learned something new today. Me too. That is a new one to me. So we had two new ones that we learned. So I did not know that. So it's, a, it's, it's a great list for uh, thanks to uh, Kiplinger. So very good. I like that. You know, and... Uh, reality is, Aaron, a lot of clients fall into this category. They do. They do. And I'm seeing a lot of clients that are um, selling their primary residence and their primary uh, state where they live and moving to where their vacation home is. Right. And this is a biggie. It is. It because is. as they good. then get there and they're figuring out, okay, well, this is not the right home now because maybe grandkids are visiting, as an example. Mm -hmm. need more they space. need to know this. Yeah. I like That's that. Good. That's good. Appreciate you going over this. Absolutely. There were some good ones in there. I love it. All right. Uh, we have no listener questions this week. I want to remind listeners that if you have questions, send those to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com and we will address those on the podcast. So Aaron, thank you for being a part of this this week. It means a lot to me. Thank you. I'm happy to do I it. I always enjoy doing this with you. It's yeah. always a treat. So thank you listeners uh, for tuning in to the 107th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you have a good, wonderful weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. 
There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.